Welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. everybody, Chad Madden here with the Grow Your Practice podcast and super excited for this episode today. We have two very special guests, uh, Mary DeLong and Alicia uh, Nevins Mahoney. By the way, do you pronounce, I know that's your Facebook name, Alicia. I never asked you if you said Nevins in there, but um, I said it, so hopefully that's okay. It's totally fine. It's, that way people know how to find me on Facebook. It's fine. <laughs> Great. So um, anyhow, Alicia and Mary are with BCMS uh, Compliance Company. If you've been paying attention at all to anything that we've ever done with Breakthrough, they were the first partner. They actually traveled here to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in our very first boot camps when we had 30 or 40 owners in the room, uh, when, again, in the early days. So they are, they are OGs, part of the original, um, the original movement in terms of uh, helping private practice owners. So welcome to the call here, both of you. Well, thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. Great. And Mary, I know you've been doing this for uh, a little over 10 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> Probably 40 something, right? Uh, 50. 50, even better. Um, and so, and I know we've called you or heard you refer to the moniker as the uh, queen of compliance. Um, <laughs> but if there's anything else that you want to fill in in the introduction there, I know you were a private practice owner as well. That would be great at this time. Uh, Yes, I, I was a private practice owner. I sold my practice when my hands failed. And, you know, if it can't contribute to uh, our growth, then you have to look elsewhere. And what I wanted to do was really uh, to take a burden off the shoulders of private practice owners, because as an owner, I knew I was treating patients, trying to know what I was supposed to do from, from a clinical perspective, all of those things, how to run a business and also keep track of regulation. And the regulation part was the hardest. So that's why BCMS evolved into a compliance company rather than just a management company. And Alicia, do you, um, I know you handle um, at least all of the material that I ever get to read from BCMS, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> if you wanna talk about your role in terms of how you're involved with BCMS and how you help owners as well, that'd be great. Sure, sure. So I've been um, working off and on for BCMS since I was 16. So needless to say, um, there's a track record here. And for anybody who doesn't know, Mary is my mother. So we are a mother-daughter dynamic duo. Um, my role is I'm, I'm uh, most of the time the uh, face front person of, of kind of getting to know our services. And so anytime you've got like an initial interest in any of our services that we provide, that's typically me. Um, I kind of walk you through um, that we provide, you know, different audits um, that we provide, you know, offsite chart audits, you know, in-house audits, you know, et cetera, SRAs that we also provide, you know, provider enrollment and credentialing. And then that we, um, you know, also have our compliance program. And I am heavily involved in um, helping our clients implement their compliance program and put them into play. Because one of the mottos of BCMS is that you actually get to talk to a human being and you, you know, we're, we're consultants, so you should be able to get a consultant on the phone. And so that's um, really my main role of the, of the organization. A quick note before we continue with this episode. 
you enjoyed what you're listening to so far, you're going to want to make sure that you register for our upcoming Direct-to-Consumer Virtual Summit on July 16th. This is a free event for anyone in private practice PT to come and learn from the industry's leading experts on how they're using direct access marketing to grow their practice. You can get your free ticket by heading over to breakthrough.com forward slash July 2021. I'll see you then. Great. So the very first thing that I want to dive into, and I know we've talked about this in the past, but why compliance? So for, you know, we, we get to talk with over a thousand owners um, every year, um, not only all 50 states, but all over the world. And the, the one thing, you know, once an owner has a certain size, um, it, it's really important for them to think about com- compliance. The way that I've always explained it is, hey, you know, you've created a you've, you're building a business, you have employees, likely, um, you have processes in place, and you really want to protect that. You want to be stable because, um, you know, as therapists, we understand the importance of selling ACL prevention, but yet for some odd reason, when we talk about business health, we don't understand compliance and how it's really uh, prevention of loss of repercussions of an audit or something like that. So um, I, I've been through it, and we always talk about that in terms of uh, prevention. And, uh, you know, what's the saying, the Ben Franklin saying, an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure or something like that. That's a good Texas saying, right? (laughs) So um, that's how I think about compliance. When you're working with owners, how do you explain it and and why is it important? You know, I think the thing that in in my early days when I did selling, I don't do that anymore. That's Alicia. (laughs) I tried to explain to them from the perspective of if if you don't know you're doing something wrong, you don't correct it. And it's just, you know, like a lot of things we do, even clinical. And uh, it's very hard for them to realize the vulnerability they place themselves in, whether it is federal regulations, whether it's with your employees, whether it's with your patients, whatever, the vulnerabilities start mounting and your risk goes straight up. So in order to sleep at night, because what, what we get is comments from people that they say, um, I can really sleep at night now because I know you're there. I know you're giving us the right information. And it's not, it's not just to limit your vulnerability. It is to do the right thing. I mean, laws are there in place to protect a lot of times the consumer, but also our, our employees and, and ourselves, our businesses. So it's doing the right thing. Uh, and, um, uh, having a, a good, vetted, uh, responsible uh, person to hold your hand and, t- and take you through that. That's really what we talk about. Excellent. Um, so, Mary, the first question that I want to ask you about the, um, the article. So you published an article or you had an article published uh, February earlier this year in uh, PPS magazine Impact, the state of audits today. So we're now living in a emerging post-pandemic world, possibly, potentially, it looks like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, what, uh, what are you seeing in terms of audits right well, now? Well, you know, when we entered the pandemic, we, st- we were just full-fledged uh, be, being audited everywhere, every time you turned around, whether it was Medicare, whether it was commercials, 
a lot of audits going on because they're all trying to see if they're spending their money wisely and if they can recoup it. So uh, CMS in 2017 initiated a quote, new kind of audit, and it was called a targeted probe and educate audit. Uh, for the purpose, they said, of uh, reducing claim denials and improving um, the payment uh, for services, uh, the first go round. And so they, there wouldn't be so many appeals. That's work on everybody's part. So this was the, what they stated was the purpose. And in this particular type of audit, uh, the, there's an education component provided by the Medicare administrative contractor. Um, they pull charts on a post-payment basis. Um, it's based on uh, data they pull from claims. Okay, so they're looking at, for the most part, aberrant behavior. Um, they pull the charts, uh, they send you a letter. Guess what? You're under a, um, a targeted probe audit and we want this many charts and we're gonna review them. Um, if you're above our error, acceptable error rate, uh, we're gonna educate. After we educate, we're gonna do it again. If you still have a high error rate, we're gonna do it again. And they do it, quote, up to three times. Now, I do know a number of providers who have had five, six, seven, eight rounds. They're into their second year of this. So, and some of those were absolutely stopped dead cold when they, when CMS um, halted audits, I guess somewhere like in the summer of last year, early summer. May, um, May June. May, June. like that, yeah. Um, and uh, halted the audit, all audits um, because of the overload of providers at the time. Well, that didn't last very long. In August, they resumed them. Uh, and they said that all audits could be put back in place. Um, so far, we have not seen TPEs be reactivated uh, as they existed back prior to the pandemic. Um, but we are seeing post-payment reviews and we are seeing those heavily on the East Coast, you lucky guys, um, and in California. We're not seeing them throughout the country. It is specific to the uh, MAC. Uh, NGS is the most aggressive. Palmetto, Palmetto is pretty aggressive. CGS um, and uh, First Coast in Florida, those areas uh, seem to be um, jumping on the bandwagon as did Meridian in California. Um, so when we look at what they're doing, and of course Medicare reenacted this because they said, oh, well, we can't let fraud go on and we've got to protect the Medicare trust fund. And so what we're seeing now is a little different. They're calling them targeted post-payment reviews and they're based on CPT codes. So they're looking at, Chad, what's the word? You know. Redundant coding. Redundant coding, that's right. Redundant coding. So for those of you who haven't heard this little catchphrase, um, it means that you use the same CPT codes or code sets routinely for most of your patients or all of your patients, regardless of diagnosis, without change throughout the episode of care. They're looking at that. They are seeing it. They even have it in their language now. 
So they're listening to us because they're saying redundant coding. That didn't exist <laughs> before we coined that phrase. So they are looking at it. We didn't teach them to look at it. They, they were seeing it before. They just didn't use the language. But they are saying, how in God's creation can you do the same thing to everybody? Well, what they're finding out is we're not doing the same thing to everybody. We're just coding it that way. I call it convenient coding because uh, we get in the habit and we do one of this, one of this, one of that, or three of these and one of that, that type of thing. So it, it does put a big question on clinical decision-making. So you can see that at the claim level, all they have to do is open the claim and open the episode of care and all of the episodes of care under a particular provider's NPI. And there it is. Got so it. that's so, kind of what's dragging it, uh, drawing it. So most common examples that we see there uh, when I'm talking with practices, by the way, that re I, I, I think three or four years ago, you first mentioned that redundant coding phrase. Yeah. And, uh, and I know when we had the audit done here, when you, uh, flew in and walked through our clinic and uh, that, that was a wonderful experience now. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, when I'm talking with other owners, the easiest way to explain it is I'll say, okay, what's your average unit? And they'll say four and I'll say, okay, what do you normally bill? And they'll say 97140 times two, 97110 and a 97, uh, you know, Maybe it's yeah. a neuromuscular re-ed or a therapeutic activity, 97530, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, how often do you think you're billing that? And they'll say 80% of the time. And I was like, that, that is redundant coding. There you go. That, yes. that, that uh, CMS, Medicare can look at how you're building, billing out under your NPI number. And they know that you know if you build out 10,000 units uh, in a certain time period and 5,000 of those units are 97110, um, and 2,500 are uh, 97140, and the other 2,500 are 97112, pretty good chance that, and Mary, you mentioned the word, the phrase there, uh, aberrant behavior. That's what you meant by that? Aberrant behavior. Yeah. Because, well, they, what is, I think it's interesting because it's really not so aberrant because we see so much of it, <laughs> but it's aberrant in their mind. And, and if, if we just look at this from, from a kind of progressive approach, when we treat patients, we have a foundation. Exercise is certain. We have to get them strong. We have to have good range of motion. But they learn that. We acquire that. We do manual therapy to get joints aligned, whatever. But at some point, we have to make the patient functional. If we keep doing to them and they don't do for themselves, it's, you know, that adage about teach a man to fish and he'll eat. So when they look at a claim and it has exercise and manual therapy all the way to date of discharge, this is what I look at. And when I audit, if they're doing manual therapy on discharge date, was it necessary? So they were doing something unnecessary all the way up to that point? Or is it still necessary and they're discharging them and abandoning them? You have to think of how that looks because we have not done our duty to make them functional. We should be moving into the functional activity. 
you know, probably halfway through at least. Now, when people start out with functional activities, I really get concerned because if they're functional from the beginning, do they really need us? You know, so it's just, it, it's a real simple way to look at it from a non-therapist eyes. Yeah. They know that much about what we do. Yeah, I, Mary, I remember when uh, you told me about that, that you need to do manual therapy on the last day. Mm -hmm. it, this is how I thought my way through it. I don't think I've ever shared this with you, but um, the, so many times when I'm seeing somebody on the last day, they'll say, Hey, aren't you going to do uh -huh. like, I'm, I'm used to receiving this. Aren't you going to do that? Um, or if it's the last couple of visits and I'll say, Hey, you know, I don't think you need as much manual therapy, but what I started doing in the note is doing measurements, objective measurements before, uh -huh. and then I would do the manual therapy and show objective measures after. Uh -huh. And there's almost always a, a, a slight improvement. So it's still showing, hey, there, there's a need here. Okay. Yeah. So just in With case. Documentation. Yeah. If somebody was going to come in from the outside and question what we were doing, it was at least we were at least going to show the test treat retest. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, if we they're. We do have to let them go at some point, too. You know? Absolutely. And they're, you know, if they're independent and. Um, in their home exercise program and they're fully functional and they're relatively pain-free and their objective measures are close to being normal, we would show that. But if I was going to do that last send-off treatment of manual therapy, <laughs> I was, it's going to justify it in the note <laughs> for sure. Very good. You have really, really worked it out and, and that's the way it should be. You know, I hate that we have to document to justify our existence, but we do. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we want to get so current state of audits, uh, you talked about TPE. Mm -hmm. um, you also talked about uh, the, the post-payment probe review. Right. Um, what was the one that you helped us through a few years ago? Okay, I think you had a cert. Didn't you have a cert audit? No idea, yeah. but I'll, I'll take your word for it. If you could okay. explain for everybody what that is, that would be great. Okay, so a cert audit stands for Comprehensive Error Rate Testing. And this is the audit that is really random. It is not one based on them looking at claims data. The purpose is to make sure claims are paid correctly and also to evaluate the, uh, the, the Medicare administrative contractor. Uh, because if they pay for services that aren't necessary, they get dinged. So they will send out the um, the golden rod envelope. <laughs> and it, it initially when that came out, it didn't even have CMS on it. And it was, it was just a white envelope. It had the name of the contractor. And then it said, submit your records. Well, when this first happened was when HIP, it was the same period of time that HIPAA was introduced. When if it, you go to our Twitter feed, you know, at BCMS, COMP, Literally today, I posted a picture of that envelope. Nice. Literally. So <laughs> it's like, do not throw this away. Right. So um, at the time, uh, we're going, this is, a, this is a hoax. Somebody's trying to get information and then they're going to, you're going to be in violation of HIPAA. And so nobody was responding to these because, you know, it looked like a fake letter, a fake envelope. And I happened to be on Novitas's advisory committee and I was listening to them. They said, we can get people to respond to these. I said, well, it's a 
It's just a plain vanilla envelope with no CMS logo, no nothing. And um, so they brought that to whomever. Dr. Patterson was the medical director. She was fantastic. And uh, so they created this goldenrod envelope. They put the CMS logo on it. And um, so people started looking at it. And basically what it does, it identifies a date of service. And from that, they will determine in their eyes whether it's medically necessary should have been paid. Now, you can't do that on a date of service if it's a normal treatment day. You can't tell if it's medically necessary because at that time we already had the change in documentation where treatment encounter notes did not have to be so, didn't have to justify medical necessity. It had to justify skill, but not medical necessity. So where people fail with this, and this is what happens in a lot of situations, and I believe it might've been in y'all's, you sent in the date of service, no eval, no plan of care, nothing in between the date of service and the start of care. And that's where, that's, that's almost my number one point. You were talking to me earlier about, you know, what's something you want to tell people, don't forget to do. And that is to include everything to justify medical necessity. Um, and that's what happens with the search. So if they, if we don't respond, first of all, you'll get a request for a refund or you will see it reduced on, on your remittance advice. The MAC will get a slap on the hand. They get enough of those, they lose their contract. So obviously they tried to do a fair amount of education about certs. Um, now the certs have a, a little different flavor to them. Before those were the two purposes. What I'm seeing now is the cert uh, results are being shared with what I call higher level audit auditors uh, with more consequences, possible fraud and abuse, investigations, those types of things. It, it wasn't used like that initially, uh, at least not from my understanding, but it, now we're starting to see it along with information from the OIG, from other contractors be put together. And then they say, oh, guess what? We're going to investigate for fraud. So that, that's a cert. And it's simple, um, but people have to know that if they ask for a data service, it doesn't just mean data service. It means the essential reports to support. Got it. So if we get a goldenrod envelope in the mail, <laughs> what's the first thing that we should be doing? The first, first, the first thing people should do is they should assign somebody or assume the responsibility of checking your mail because these things sit on desks. They get under the pile, under the pile, under the pile. These have time frames. All of them have, quote, expiration dates. So we have to make certain that we respond in a timely manner. You open the envelope and you keep the envelope. Do not throw away the envelope because the postmark date is critical. Because if they say we want to respond within X number of dates, and let's say the date was January 1 on the letter, but the postmark was February 12th, uh, we have, hey, wait a minute, we didn't get it in a normal period of time. We need more time to respond. So keeping the envelope critical, I say read it not just first, well, second, after you after you open it and keep the envelope, um, make two copies, a working copy and a copy to submit because usually they want you to submit a copy of the letter because it usually has a barcode on it, which they use to categorize it. 
Um, so you read it and then you read it again. You look at who sent it to you. You look at the very bottom to see if there is a contact name and you look at the dates. You circle those. And if you decide you can handle it, maybe you have our, uh, our uh, system in place as far as how you respond to audits and you can handle it. That is great. Meet or beat the deadlines by at least three days. They have a date stamp uh, in their mail room. So if it gets there, even if it doesn't hit an auditor's desk, it should be okay. But I always say, you know, we want to beat it if you can. So timely response and pulling things together. And when Alicia introduces the, the well, we call it ABR package, it's the um, additional documentation request. That's what Medicare calls their request for records. I don't know why they have to call it that long. They just say, this is a request for records. <laughs> They've never had our documentation. Why is it additional? <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know. But anyway, so um, you respond in a timely manner. If someone needs a third party to help them do this, please, dear Lord, do not send an email with the letter to that person because they already have a HIPAA issue transmitting, you know, PHI across an open internet without encryption, unless you have encryption, then that's fine. So, and we have to have a business associate agreement. So those things have to be in place. I mean, a lot of times I'll get people who are clients, never been audited, and all of a sudden, poof, I get it on my, in my uh, inbox. And I'm going, oh, I don't want to open it because I don't have a BA agreement with them. <laughs> You know, and they just sent it across the open internet. <laughs> and so we're going to compound things. So those are important things. Got it. So really what's going to happen is if I have the goldenrod envelope in my mailbox and I open it up, I'm contacting you yeah. as quickly as, which is what we did, contacting you as quickly as possible, not photocopying everything and attaching it to an email and sending it, but getting in contact with you. I know you have... Um, and we'll talk about the best way to reach you here in a, a second. I also know you have guidelines too, because um, I, I mean, I'm not going to be able to remember the appropriate way to respond to an audit. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and in the, in the link, uh, sorry, in the show notes for uh, this episode, we can include um, your, your guidelines um, for owners to, to walk through so they understand. And I think you have 13 steps or so in there. Um, you know, I don't know. I bullet quite a bit. They put numbers on it. <laughs> I bullet point a lot. But yes, and it's there and it's down to, to details like don't staple. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's actually 15 total steps. Great. So, yep. Uh, and I know we're short on time, but I don't want you to forget. We're, we're good on time. We're good on okay. time. Okay. So the, um, the threshold used to be the rack. You know, our dreaded rats. Well, they, they've kind of had their tail feathers trimmed a bit because they're still on a contingency, but they cannot collect payment for denied services until it's on the second round of appeal, which kind of puts them in their place a little bit. Um, but instead, they're not in charge of the, well, now it's called uh, the therapy threshold. So that's the $3,000. Uh, that is the supplemental, supplemental Medical Review Contractor, SMERC. 
that's an interesting name, isn't it? <laughs> they have a summer. Um, but they look, and here we go again with Everin. They, they, it is targeted because while it's targeted at $3,000 of expenditures for that patient, it is not initiated unless they see aberrant behavior. And aberrant behavior could be, uh, again, redundant coding. It could be more frequent services um, or more units of service or more whatever, more than your peers. They are typically looking at your peers and that typically is in a geographic area. So that is another audit, but it is not triggered like the rack was. The rack was automatically over 3,000 and we had to get, we had to get um, approval. Um, that's not the case with the supplemental medical review for the uh, 3,000 threshold. Great. So I want to tell my BCMS uh, audit success story. Okay. But I, but I, and I want to open up with um, my failure, which I think was very similar to this smirk first. So um, June 26, 2006, I'll never forget that date. Uh, I, we were audited and what was happening is uh, at the time, our billing system was called MedEnt, which is really a physician uh, billing system that we're no longer on. But uh, our, we had a billing, our head of billing at, for on every single claim, she was putting me in as the supervising physical therapist. Even though we employed four other DPTs, she had me on every claim. And what it did, it ranked me in the state as like the, the third most, even though I was only working like 10 hours a week uh, in terms of treating patients or 15 hours a week, whatever it was, um, it, it had me like the third or fourth highest productive physical therapist in the entire state of Pennsylvania. Which made me wonder who are the two people that actually more productive than that? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so it was this huge error. Um, we said, hey, you know, we tried to explain. Um, the auditors didn't really care. Um, they had us, I think, pull, it was either 37 or 39 charts, and they sat down and went through everything. I lied, it was 15. I, and I remember why here in a second. So it was 15 charts. Mm -hmm. um, they pulled them and they went back and forth because we were doing uh, paper charts at the time and then had an electronic schedule system. So our time in time out um, was electronic, but our uh, everything else was on paper. And they said, well, you can't switch back and forth. You can either do all electronic or you can do paper for documentation. This is true, Mary. Oh, wow. um, and th this is before BCMS. So oh. this, be before we knew you. So anyhow, they said, basically you never, saw these 15 patients um, and we owed $15,000 back. So that th there was no penalty, but it was like, you, you never saw these patients because you didn't properly document time in time out. Um, mm -hmm. We tried to go a legal route and they said, you know, essentially don't fight this. You'd be better off spending two or $3,000 to understand the education and then implement changes. So this never happens again. Mm -hmm. I was like, great. So we had a pretty good run. And then um, I think you were here in 2016 or 2017. Okay, great. Yeah, definitely. 2016, I feel like maybe 2017. Yeah, yeah definitely. 
So, um, you, and you did an audit for us. Um, for, and, and that was an in-house, we ordered that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and yeah, I know- Volunteering. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, I just remember going through that process and I was like, ooh, like this is really painful for me as an owner to like, you know, hear that mm -hmm. we, we have, you know, uh, some sort of uh, safety violation with liquids in our break room or something like that. And just going yeah. through all that. And we, ha we had a lot of redundant coding issues. And I remember you walking us through the AMA versus eight minute billing and all that other stuff. Um, the, the, ha the first major benefit that happened is we were actually leaving money on the table because we were underbilling for um, non-federal payers it is mm -hmm. an easy way to say it. The second mm -hmm. thing is we were audited shortly thereafter. And if you want to share with everybody the, the success story or I can do it, that, that would be great. I, it, well, I think it was 45 denials, right? Original? 45 I, visits? Denials that you guys had. Well, that, uh, you, you had me on that one. <laughs> would be they wanted to they were they were auditing 45 they, they wouldn't audit 45 trucks typically but i'm not sure it might have been uh services data service whatever that they were going to deny great and then we ended up not only winning the appeal but we actually they gave us more money back because you underbilled and you justified what you did right yeah we love those success stories yeah, so, so very rare that I've ever known somebody to get money back or more money, right? Um, not only win the appeal, but get more money back. Um, and that happens. So thank you very much for doing that. Well, we want you to keep what you worked so hard. And I appreciate that. Um, the, the, other, the other error that I hear, and this is a major pitfall for some owners, is uh, it gets very messy for them if they are audited if they go through any extrapolation or anything like that and they owe a lot of money back because oftentimes they've already bonused out they've already right. committed they, they've already that money is already gone that is water under the bridge and now not only do they owe all of that money back um, but they can't possibly recoup the distributions of what they've already made right. so, i have not thought about that but that is whoa major consequence yeah um, yeah, and I, I know for us, uh, that's what happened to me in 2006 as I had, or, I had already bonus, and it was 2009, June 26, 2009. Um, I don't know why I said 2006. Um, great. So any other types of audits that our owners should be aware of as they're listening to this? You know, there's one that I want to mention that's not federal. And I didn't put in my article because it was, my, my article was really on federal audits, but and, we're, and I'm seeing more and more of these and their risk assessment audits by Medicare Advantage or Part C payers. So federal, yes, but not traditional Medicare, okay? So what they have to do to, to justify what they're being paid for providing services and payment to their subscribers is justify the complexity of care, that they get paid on the complexity of care. So in order to do that, they do need uh, other 
resources to prove that up. I mean, they can say, okay, here's the patient, here's the diagnosis, but does that patient require, you know, other kinds of services, PT, what, additional labs, a lot of imaging, whatever it is. So they call upon the providers to give them documents to support this, but it's done in a kind of a sneaky way. They send out a letter, it says, um, we need your records. And typically they say eight days and sometimes it's an outrageous number of records. But, you know, sometimes it's not, it just depends. It's, it might be a date of a couple of dates of service per patient, but it's a short turnaround time and it's called a risk assessment audit. So everybody panics, they're going, I just got this from Blue Cross, I just got this from Humana, I just got, oh, and they tell me I had eight days and I, we just got it and it was a weekend and now we only have three days. To, well, anyway, you go through all that. Um, that risk assessment helps them get paid. So they're willing to work with you. Okay, now I would never tell you not to cooperate because they still have the upper hand. They can come back and say, well, now we really will honor you. But I would tell you to say, administratively, we cannot handle this volume. So can we cut the number down to this? And can you give us 30 days or 45 days? We could do that. That worked particularly well during COVID, but even before COVID, we were able to, to say, we just can't. It's not a workload we can handle. They need your information. So they are more likely to be cooperative. But it's real important for people to look at who sends the audit. Very important to know who sent that. Because if it's not traditional Medicare, then who is it and what is the purpose of the audit and what is it based on? And they don't say much besides the risk assessment. So and that's not to, what I want to know. And now not to pile on on different types of audits, because I think we've already heard of a number that make us want to do this. Um, but there are audits that happen because of complaints. So there are OSHA audits and there are also HIPAA audits. And so we saw a number of OSHA audits during the pandemic. It's kind of subsided now, but this was because either a patient or employee didn't feel safe. So as we're having these mask mandates lifted and some of the states are opening up, you know, full capacity, you may be surprised. That's why we still are recommending keeping all the protocols in place because somebody who is uncomfortable could turn you in and then they could come in and do a full OSHA audit. And a full OSHA audit is everything from having your safety data sheets in place to your PPE, to your spill kits, all these you know, other intricacies. And so those are things that we saw, um, you know, a number, we actually talked to a lot of product X people, um, you know, in some of the, you know, summits um, about that. But then with HIPAA, if you have a HIPAA breach, if it's severe enough or if you've done so many HIPAAs, they will come and audit you as well. And so those are things that also are just different types of audits and they will be looking for a security risk analysis. So those are things that to pile on in the regulation land with audits, those are just two other areas. The security risk analysis, uh, the lack of security risk analysis and business associate agreements targets. Those are HIPAA targets right now, big time. Yep. So uh, people need to be aware of that. And Alicia's right, complaints have generated more and more of the audits. Um, I had, and I think I might've mentioned this to you the other day, Chad, that had for the first time a patient 
confront the therapist about the, their ELB. My ELB says one-on-one -on -one exercise and you are with other people. So why did I get charged for one-on-one? -on -one? How about how did, that? How did that go? Well, we worked on the language <laughs> because I mean, the bottom line is we can explain to the patient at kind of at a high level about the eight minute rule and about 50% of the majority of the unit. And if we meet that, then one-on-one -on -one is accomplished. It usually is over their head. I, I don't know, <laughs> you know how, but she said, when I talked to our client, she said it went well. So that's good, a good, good. <laughs> Yep, um, would not want to be in having, <laughs> having that conversation. Oh, no, thank you. Um, so I, I have a curveball for you uh, that that I supposed to do that. Uh, was it was something else that uh, just came up recently with uh, a, a local orthopod that I'd never heard before. Um, but just as a reminder for everybody that's listening to this, um, the, we will have in the show notes we'll have the link uh, to Mary and Alicia's uh, BCMS guidelines for an audit. Also, if somebody is um, audited and they get that goldenrod envelope. What is the best way to, to get in contact with you and BCMS? Um, well, we'll have our information, you know, available to you on the, on the show notes, but also just our BCMS work website. It has contact us. Alicia is our go-to person. She kind of triages everything. So if it's an HR issue or HIPAA or OSHA or clinical or whatever, she'll send it to the right person. You can jump right on her calendar, tell her this fill and cry your heart out, and then she'll say, okay, go to this person. <laughs> Alicia, what's your best email for everybody? Um, go with Nevins, A-N-E-V-I-N-S-A at B-C-M-S-C-O-M-P.com. Got it. Great. So You can also say Mahoney A. I have them both, but Mahoney is just longer to spell out. So... <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, the, so this is the curveball. Uh, as we know from the pandemic last year, there was a major hold nationwide on uh, orthopedic procedures, right. especially total knees, total hips. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I was at the barbershop. Um, I'm a frequent visitor there now. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, the, the gentleman that was in the chair before me was uh, mid late eighties. And the barber said that, by the way, same barber for 33 years, um, said, hey, this gentleman, and he said his name, uh, just had a total hip replacement. And the guy just started spouting out. And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, I said, are you in PT? And I just assumed he was, we have all the orthopedic surgeons here have pops their own PT practice. And he said, no, they told me they're going to wait six months. And then I get 30 visits. And I was like, and this took me a second it, I, I had to sleep on it, but I was like, why would they wait six months? And then I heard it again. And I was like, does that affect the bundling payment if they wait six months and then they can get, because 30 visits sounds like a max number of visits. Yeah. And I, 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 I was, it, one, did you hear that anywhere else? Because I've heard it twice. I have not. And I have to tell you, and this will throw you a curve. I don't think I can answer that question. Got it. 
I don't think I can answer that because one, we'd have to know intent, but we'd have to know the parameters. And I'm not familiar with the with the billing parameters for the orthopedic bundling. Yep. So, and, and that's that's very fair. I'll just throw it out there for owners. <laughs> yeah, um, if they have an answer, that would be great to hear. Yeah, because I, I almost want to um, send a letter because the gentleman, and this was the kicker, had a cane and the cane was on the wrong side. Of course. And I was like, well, that would be an easy, <laughs> easy one to correct so you don't end up with back pain or some other well, and the fact Jason that you're problem. waiting for six months to rehab a total joint, yep. to me, is it's a real practice question. Yep. It, it just, I, it was a post-pandemic change that I wanted to understand what was yep. going on. If you do hear it and you'd like to have an offline yep. conversation, we can also do that as well. Um, so the, we covered a ton here. You talked about the state of audits. You went through at least four or five different audit types. Um, you provided everybody guidelines. And also, um, if they don't want to work through the guidelines themselves, which I highly recommend you don't do that because it's easy to panic and make a mistake. Um, you also provided your information, the best way to contact you. Um, any other words of wisdom or advice, what you're seeing in the marketplace today, Mary or Alicia, for, for our owners out there? I don't think so, but I, I, I'll tell you one thing that does make a difference, and that is showing an endeavor to keep your staff educated. Um, also doing, you know, internal focus audits. I know we've set it up. We've talked to Ben before. Um, we set up focus audits for them. So if we saw an area that might be questionable, then internally, if, if let's just say, your plans of cares aren't signed timely. Are you, when you were pulling up charts, you found there were some that were not signed. That's an internal audit. You can do that, you know, lickety split and monitor yourself. So monitor yourself, educate. And if you feel like you need external help, there's always voluntary audits like you did, Chad. Uh, we do offsite audits. Everything can be remote. Uh, even before pandemic, the pandemic, we were doing our offsite audits remotely. So, um, you know, that's just something for people to consider. Just an interesting question on that. I didn't think of, so the, um, you talked about keeping the staff educated. I know you have programs around that, depending on the Webinar. practice type. Um, mm -hmm. Great. The, and the focused audits or the self audit, is there a, an ideal client that you think an, an owner type that that is perfect for? Um, I think that they have to have time. Somebody who, I want to say is committed to it and also has an attention to detail. What I've typically seen when people do internal audits is it's peer to peer. I'm not going to bet. I'm not going to tell them they don't write good notes. I'm not going to tell them no, Dave, I have to work side by side with them. So you have to be committed to making the improvements that are needed and being able to deal with that. Um, if you don't have that kind of environment, if people are very sensitive, you know, to criticism uh, or constructive criticism, let's put it that way, um, then probably external is best. But we really promote internal auditing as much as possible because it shows that, you know, you're, you're proactive and, and you are trying to, to move forward on that. Excellent. Mary and Alicia, thank you both very much for 
for sharing here your wisdom and knowledge. And uh, for everybody that is on this call, again, the website, I believe, is bcmscomp.com. Yep, bcmscomp.com. And also Alicia gave um, her email address. We'll have both of her email addresses in the show notes. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Remember to visit getbreakthrough.com to access our free resource library designed specifically for private practice growth. While you're there, make sure you register for a complimentary growth assessment to learn about potential opportunities for growth in your local market. Again, thank you for tuning into the Grow Your Practice podcast and supporting our mission to help people in pain get back to normal naturally.